Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So I'm pretty excited about having James Lindsay on. We've had him on a number of times going way, way back. But he's become a kind of a legend in the world of Twitter. And if you don't follow James Lindsay on Twitter, you're making a mistake. Author, mathematician. I'm going to let him introduce himself. James Lindsay, welcome back to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Hey, great to be here. Introducing myself, though, is a tall order. I'm always a bit awkward with that. But so, be- before you became, like, nationally famous, you were just a math professor? I had 10 years ago. I actually left the university in 2010 because they were shifting to a model to retain students at all costs, and I just couldn't teach. I didn't see the ideological implications of that at the time. I couldn't teach under those conditions. So I was a math professor until 2010, and then I was actually a massage therapist in the years in between, of all things. And your politics in general are very liberal. They have been. Um, I'm a bit... Uh, a bit scared of that side of the aisle right now, so they're not so much right now. Yeah, I would call you, just because I follow your Twitter feed pretty regularly, a classical liberal, as opposed to what like a, a lot of modern, you know, younger liberal thought is. And we'll get into yeah. more of that in just a little bit. Um, but now you've become famous for a whole bunch of things. Um, when you and, uh, and, and a couple other people got together and wrote some bogus papers that you, you submitted to various publications and they got accepted. You became famous for that. The uh, mm-hmm. what, what was right. the what was the name of that? That got called the grievance studies affair on the back end of that because we decided to call all of those things like whether it's critical race theory, which everybody's heard of now, or gender studies or fat studies, which is a thing, unbelievably, or disability studies. They always end in some kind of a studies cultural right. studies. Right. We just said that what these these fields are doing are stoking grievances. They're trying to, you know, dredge up or picket scabs or whatever, dredge up hurts, picket scabs, make people feel aggrieved against the system, against society, and they study grievance in that regard. So we called all of this stuff as a catch-all term, grievance studies. And so that got called the grievance studies affair. And we wrote 20 fake papers over the course of a year. These things, that's like an entire academic's career usually. Um, seven of them were accepted. We still had seven more under review when the Wall Street Journal uh, told on us. So yeah, <laughs> and they, and successful. The, and the amazing thing was, and we've talked about this a lot, and man, if you, you Google this if you've never heard it, because you guys went so over the top. It was like just just so incredibly over the top, yet a number of them still got accepted as legitimate academic work. Not even that. They've been coming true since. Um, yeah, we had some really crazy over-the-top ones. We had one about uh, whether you can watch people react to the way that dogs misbehave in dog parks, particularly sexually with one another. And then you can divine something about rape culture from watching that. And then (laughs) we just trained men the way that we trained dogs. Then we could probably combat rape culture. That was a very feminist approach. And that, that paper not only was accepted and published, but it was given an award for excellence in scholarship. Um, We rewrote a chapter of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and that was accepted by a social work journal. Uh, wow. in terms of intersectional feminism. We had a number of other kind of hilarious papers. We had one that we argued that the sport of competitive bodybuilding, uh, professional bodybuilding, is fatphobic because it sees building muscle as fundamentally different than building fat, so we need to have a category <laughs> called fat bodybuilding. That was accepted. Oh, my 
my God, that's hilarious. We had another one, and one other paper though we wrote. It was that you can't use satire to make fun of social justice, and this has been borne out now. The literally Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility previously, and now has her new book Nice Racism or whatever it's called. She literally just did an interview, and she should have cited us. She made the same argument, almost. I mean, uncannily similar argument and citing the same kinds of television shows we brought up, et cetera, as we made in one of our fake papers, which was also accepted. Um, and it hit on the Babylon Bee, which is, you know, a satire site on the Internet. It's really funny. They got told that, you know, their their form of satire against social justice is, you know, punching down or punching up, I don't know, punching something. And so <laughs> they got told, I mean, the papers we wrote are coming true. Like the people are actually arguing the things that we wrote in, in satire and, and it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to bring up your, the, the, the grievance studies affair, as it is now called, and, and that was with Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose, um, is I came across this article the other day that I thought you would think was funny if you haven't seen this yet. This is for real, a local university. Uh, my wife went to this university, UC Davis. Cultural biases impact native fish. Study calls for end to rough fish pejorative and the paradigm that created it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fish, is, fish names are racist now, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And it gets down and it says the study maintains that the term rough fish is pejorative and degrading to native fish. This, this, that's that's, not, that sounds like it's from the Babylon Bee, but it's an actual for real article. No, that's exactly the kind of thing that we would have wrote too. We wanted to write a paper and we just ran out of time and didn't, didn't prioritize it about how putting things like onions or seasoning and cornbread gentrifies cornbread and takes it away from black people and <laughs> perpetuates the racial divide. We're going to call it the gentrification of cornbread and perpetuation <laughs> of American racial division or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's absurd. You know, it's in the, the fish are insulted now. And th- these people actually kind of think this way. They really do think that, the you know, these words, the way that we use words, structures reality. They, they genuinely think that and create these power dynamics that are going to oppress people. So calling them rough fish somehow is going to cause other, I don't know, people, I guess you would think it's not the fish, to believe something ridiculous like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm just a rough person because I'm from another culture. That's probably what the argument runs like. It's just absurd. It's totally absurd. You and uh, Helen Pluckrose uh, wrote the book, nonfiction book, Cynical Theories, which is very serious. And, um, you know, because we're having a lot of fun with this, but this is this is super duper serious in that. The country has gone crazy, and a, whole, and a big chunk of the country that, for whatever reason, gets a hell of a lot of attention, has just gone nutso. And um, and you're trying to bring it back into uh, into the world of sanity, and you're now one of the, if not the leading pushback against critical race theory. Do you have a like a shorthand version for what critical race theory is for people so they can understand it? Yeah, I've been working on this for a long time. I finally boiled it down. Critical race theory is an almost religious belief that the fundamental uh, structure of society is racism that was created by white people to benefit white people. If you believe that religiously and believe that that has to be torn down, you know, root and branch, then you're probably a critical race theorist. So if you believe that society was built on racism by white people for white people's benefit and that it's in literally everything you can imagine, you're probably a critical race theorist. And I love you throwing in the, the, the term religion. 
Um, and I know you're an atheist, but uh, the the way it has taken on this, um, because there there the, the, it's got all the the the, the hallmarks of religion, and that there are people that if you run afoul of it, it's blasphemy, and you need to be you know you need to lose your job, you need to have your life ruined because you said something that went against the doctrine of critical uh, the the critical race theory as they see it, and it's just it's it's so weird. Like I almost can't even the, uh, particularly when I see these uh, white people professors or college kids or whatever um beating up on themselves and they, they talk about i'm just i'm such a bad person and i need to take a longer look at the way that i'm ruining the world you know it's just it's it's like a mental illness to me it, it really is in fact it, the the religion thing isn't just like oh it's kind of like one or parallel it really is one and people can't quite see it because they're like well what's the god of the religion they can't like figure out how it works but the god it turns out is history with a capital h the exact same way that marx looked at history history has a trajectory history has a purpose the purpose for marx for history was to get to communism to get to the utopia where we no longer have classes we no longer have a state that depresses anybody nobody is oppressed because we transcend classes and states and all of the things that cause oppression and history is progressing along this pathway by means of revealing contradictions so if you bring up the contradictions Predictions and do criticism on them. We move history along. And if you're doing that the right way, then you're on the right side of history. If you're doing it the wrong way, you're on the wrong side of history. So it's God is the trajectory of history that has a heaven on earth target at the end. And people who help that along are people in the faith. They're good people. And the people who hinder that and try to so-called maintain the status quo are bad people. And this is why you see their utter hatred of conservatives, utter hatred of, of, you know, any order, liberal order, societal order that's not theirs, um, their, their vision. And people don't understand that their God is actually this weird belief that tracks all the way back to the early 19th century in Germany about how history might work. So we're talking with James Lindsay. Um, I'm looking at his Twitter feed, which is a fantastic follow, and underneath it it says, uh, not New York Times best-selling author, math PhD, founder of New Discourses, apolitical, against totalitarianism and supremacy of all kinds for freedom, and uh, you're definitely one of the the best thinkers, writers, and uh, speakers on this topic in, in, that I've come across anywhere in America. Thank God. Um, what do you mean by not New York Times best-selling author? Oh, so Cynical Theories was actually, it made it onto the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list, it made it onto the Publisher Weekly bestseller list, it made it onto a few different bestsellers lists, but the New York Times didn't put it on theirs. And so we dug into this because we had, you know, the book scan or whatever, the, the sales numbers, and it turns out that we actually sold enough copies of Cynical Theories in the first week to where we should have been on the list, and in fact, we sold three times as many as the last two books on the list. But for some reason, they they deemed that it didn't reflect the organic buying habits of Americans, and therefore did not put it on the New York Times bestselling list. So bestseller everywhere but the New York Times, which snubbed us for some reason, uh, and I guess that's their business. Did not reflect the organic buying habits of Americans, okay. Yeah. Whatever the hell that means. I see it didn't pass your sniff test either. <laughs> yeah, whatever the hell that means. How how difficult is your life? I, I've wondered this a lot because I follow you regularly. Like I'm a fanboy of James Lindsay. I got to admit it. Um, how difficult has your life gotten taking all this on? I mean, how, what's your what's your email feed? Your your hate mail? Your all that sort of stuff like? You know, I get a little bit of hate mail. I don't get a tremendous amount. Uh, the difficulty is the volume 
of, you know, whether it's fan mail, it's mostly questions people are asking me mail or can you help me with this mail? Mm -hmm. You know, I get so much requests for that. That's very difficult. The harder part, you know, if we got into the kind of psychological side of heart, it's like I live in, you know, they say if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. I live in the abyss. (laughs) It's like I went into the abyss and send letters to the world. And so it's like, you know, I read the most negative, evil, poisonous stuff literally all day, try to make sense of it, try to understand it and try to communicate it to other people. And that actually is pretty exhausting. Um, But everything else is great. (laughs) (laughs) You live in the abyss. Everything else is great. Can you explain the current clown controversy that's going on? (laughs) Around me? Um, Yeah. Yeah, so... I, I mean, lots of people have been using the meme clown world to describe what's going on, right? And so this is, everybody kind of gets it. It's like these people are in some regard that are pushing these crazy ideas that don't attach to reality are somehow kind of clowns. And then, you know, there's Nicole Hannah-Jones at the New York Times. She's got her big red hair, and people have noticed that that looks kind of like clownish. And so the other day I saw a picture of her. She was all proud of herself. It was on Twitter. So I took the picture, and I just put a clown emoji period, send tweet with the picture. And people went berserk because I'm just, I call all of these people clowns. I call, you know, it doesn't matter who they are. It's not just her hair or whatever. I call all these people clowns all the time. I refer to clown world all the time. And so she went berserk and said that I was attacking her appearance. Thousands of people went nuts and got angry at me for attacking a black woman's appearance, which, well, I mean, it's coincidental in my opinion because I call all these people clowns. So then they went berserk. And so then I came up with a, parody, as I tend to do, like the fake papers, and I started talking about critical clown theory, and I just took critical (laughs) race theory, took out race, put in clown, and just wrote their words with, you know, slight changes, and it just all fits to try to, you know, point out that, you know, I said that that, um, Nicole Anna Jones had uh, clown fragility instead of white fragility. Her clownery was pointed (laughs) out, and she reacted with a series of rhetorical maneuvers to try to, you know lash out or whatever i did this the, the kind of the whole thing and people loved it um because they get the satire they get the parody right. and the, the again the clown world thing sticks you'll notice on my twitter feed that i if you follow me that i put clown emojis on basically sure. all of this stuff like anthony fauci clown he's not a black woman clown <laughs> you know, there's just clowns all the way down because the stuff they're saying right. is not attached to reality it's like a circus it's you know it's all under the big top and uh it's just kind of a meme I'm playing with, and, and people got really upset when I and attached it to her. Have you heard anything from Twitter? Themselves. Do you have any concern that Twitter cancels you at some point? Because that is your uh, biggest uh, biggest you know megaphone you've got. That's true. They, they've shot across my bow twice. Once for something I, I think that they were wrong, but at least I know what I did and can kind of see their made-up reasons and clown world for it. Uh, once with no explanation whatsoever, so where I got suspended for, you know, 12 or 24 hours or whatever. So they haven't taken any serious action against me with that particular clown thing. I got a number of emails from Twitter saying we investigated you and we found no violation. And so, well, okay. Uh, apparently you're still allowed to call public figures clowns uh, <laughs> on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, we're talking with James Lindsay, and unfortunately, we got we got to let him go. I could talk to you absolutely all day long, and the main reason I wanted to have you on is to push people to follow you on uh, Twitter, to read your books, because you're you're the best voice out there, I think, on all this craziness, and I really appreciate the effort that you put on on a regular basis. 
Hey, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. James Lindsay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll link him uh, at our website, armstrongandgetty.com, and I'll, I tweet him out all the time. So we just talked to James Lindsay, and if you missed that, man, catch the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. He is absolutely fantastic, and, uh, you know, I pardon the expression, but he's doing God's work. He's an atheist and doesn't believe in that sort of thing, but he is fighting the good fight against political correctness and all this critical race theory crap and uh, the, the craziness of college campuses, and he's smart enough and clever enough to do it in such a great way. Follow him on the Twitter. Read his books. I know I sound like a fanboy. It's because I am a fanboy for James Lindsay. Really like the work he's doing. Um, got some good stuff coming up. We're going to talk to, uh, going to talk about crime in Seattle. Similar situation of what's going on all across the country. Crime is up. Cops are quitting. Defund the police continues to be a theme for a lot of the left. What is going on there? That's coming up in a little bit. Hey, fans of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul in specific. And I am a Better Call Saul uh, a lover. I'm only like three seasons in. Bob Odenkirk, the star, while filming the final season, had a heart attack today on the set and was taken away in an ambulance. Hopefully he's going to be all right. We'll keep you updated on that. But the uh, star of Better Call Saul, Bob Odenkirk, heart attack on the set in New Mexico today. Oh, and Joe Getty joins the show next half hour also. So a lot of good stuff to come. Our text line, 415-295-KFTC. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Love this tune. Keep it cranked up, Michael. Just let me know if you want to go. Ha ha. To that whole mile. I got a lot of nice girls. Huh? <laughs> I got a lot of nice girls. Huh? This is ZZ Top, the bass player from ZZ Top. Dusty Hill died yesterday, so we've been heavy on the ZZ Top. Love the ZZ Top. The beards, the cars, the clothes, the spinning guitars. Uh, welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Uh, Joe Getty is going to come up next segment. Uh, he's uh, playing in a golf tournament. This weekend's what he's up to. Um, I'm up to uh, following the world, watching the little Olympics, taking care of my kids, etc. Had to cancel football practice for my son yesterday because it's so smoky around where I live. That happens uh, and if you're in wildfire areas of the country. When it gets hot and still and smoky, I mean, the, the air is just too bad to breathe, and they have to cancel outdoor stuff like that. So crime is a growing issue in America, political issue. More and more people catching on to the fact that crime is up, all different kinds of categories of crime. And you know what you need to bring down crime? You need cops. Well, that's a problem lots of different places, including in Seattle right now. And we're going to talk to Mike Solon, who's uh, the president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild. Mike, welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Hey, happy to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I, I want to talk about this. And, uh, you know, we're talking specifically about Seattle, but similar problems all across America. I'm reading right here. Over the last year and a half, 
The Seattle Police Department has lost 250 police officers, which is the equivalent of over 300,000 service officers, on path to losing 300 police officers. That's a lot of calls that are going to go unheeded. That's a lot of criminals that aren't going to get arrested. That's a lot of deterrence that's not going to happen. Um, so tell me what's going on. Well, your statistics are spot on. And as you and I both know, statistics and data do not lie. But the activist Twitter mob that is in control of Seattle's public safety political discourse dictates how things are done in Seattle. And our politicians acquiesce to the mob. And the problem is, is we're now left with the reasonable citizens in the city who still support public safety and the cops. Um, They're the ones left holding the bag. And here we are. We've lost a third of the officers, and they continue to leave because a year ago, when the mayor and a current mayoral candidate, who's the current president of the city council, publicly applauded this agency as the modeled reformed agency, and just that, that happened days before George Floyd, and obviously when George Floyd happened, they completely pivoted their political talking points. And the political betrayal from that experience has what's left to this vacuum and this public safety crisis that we are experiencing in Seattle. Um, But to your point, anybody that supported the defund nonsense, this type of crime and low staffing numbers is now rampant throughout major urban cities yeah all across america and i've got a friend who is a police officer and i i won't mention uh where but in, in a big city and um and he actually retired a little earlier than he was planning and when he retired he said he didn't realize how much pressure he was feeling until he retired just that every time he was on a call he was worried you know here i'm gonna end up being a viral video i'm gonna end up a household name for just doing my job and maybe i make a mistake maybe i don't doesn't make any difference and, uh, and just the pressure of that, is that, what's, is that what's causing cops to quit? And the other question I want to answer to both of these, is that why cops are quitting? And are you having trouble getting people to apply? Yeah, well, to, to your last point, it's very difficult now to get people to apply to be a police officer, not just in Seattle, but I believe nationwide. Uh, as you know, the riots post-George Floyd, the activists, the Antifa mob, the Twitter mob, as I refer to them as, they specifically targeted officers. They've doxxed them. They've harassed them. They've marched on private homes. They've done, they've done everything they can to try to break the system and break the spirit of police officers. And I believe it's the people that are culpable are obviously our feckless politicians right. that don't have the courage or the backbone to stand up to the Twitter mob. But there's a continued political narrative to target specific uh, parts of the criminal justice system, meaning the police officers, for just being there to do the job. And there is this fear that if you make one mistake as a human during the doing the job of a police officer, that that mistake will be amplified by the activist mob, then obviously amplified even more with the media, particularly people that don't really want to put the real message out to the American citizens. And then it's literally that police officer, that individual police officer 
that is left holding the bag, and they're the ones whose career, and more often than not, their livelihood, their personal lives are ruined because of just the job they chose to do to serve our communities. So these are just kind of general themes we're talking about, and it's all true and it's all a problem, but let's just talk about like the reality nuts and bolts. If you're down 300 officers in a city like Seattle, what what actually happens? Do you just... Are the, are the police just spread further apart? Are there just less people on shift at any given time? So the so if you dial 911, it takes that much longer to get somebody? I mean, what, what happens in reality? Yeah, the reality is is that crimes don't go, uh, excuse me, crimes do not get investigated to the degree that they used to be investigated. Mm. You're going to have longer wait times to get a police officer to you. And currently right now, we're experiencing uh, a spike and obviously the overtime because they have to spend money for officers just to fill the uniform to meet that patrol staffing level, which would be somewhat of a reasonable approach or response time to meet somebody's priority one need. And the priority one call is basically a straight-up emergency. And right now, we're feeling the effects of our people are, are burnt out. The people that are still left, they're doing double shifts. Uh, the money allotted for overtime is through the roof. And this is a staffing crisis that will take decades to recover, all because of the political betrayal by our elected officials in the city of Seattle. When I mentioned a year ago, they were applauding us as being the modeled reformed agency who was adhering to the Department of Justice reform guidelines. And obviously, days later, when Floyd unfortunately happened in Minneapolis, these politicians couldn't walk away from us fast enough. And that's what's led to this, what I call an erosion in public safety in the city of Seattle. Mike Solon, President, Seattle Police Officers Guild. Well, we appreciate you coming on today, and we'll check back in with you um, over the coming months uh, to see, you know, I feel like the pendulum is going to swing back the other direction because defund the police is one of the stupidest political um, uh, phrases and, and things to run on in the history of politics. And it's not popular at all, even for Democrats. But thanks for coming on today. Appreciate yeah. it. Oh, you bet. And the, just a real call to action for people. you got to get involved. Start getting involved in elections at your local school boards. And if you want further uh, follow-up, please visit my podcast, Hold the Line with Mike Solon, available on all podcasts and com. Really appreciate you having me on. You betcha. Thank you. And Joe's coming up in a little bit, uh, Joe Getty. And, um, you know, it's something Joe always says is that uh, – uh, what does Joe always say? It popped out of my head. What does Joe always say? Hey, Joe, what do you always say? I'll ask him when he comes on. Um, the, the, uh, it's amazing how, uh, oh, about the idea of uh, these things catching on the, and, and people get like a fever for these weird ideas. Um, like the defund the police and a bunch of politicians say, yeah, yeah, I'm for defunding the police. Uh, that sounds like a good idea. And a tiny percentage of people got all worked, all whipped up about this stupid, stupid idea when the majority of Americans, including Democrats and particularly people who live in crime ridden neighborhoods, they want more police, not fewer. And it, but, but it caught on corporate media latched onto it and it became a thing. And here we are. You got towns like Seattle where they're down 300 cops soon, and you just can't function as a city. It's really weird. Anyway, speaking of Joe Getty, he's going to be on in just a second, and we'll talk about a variety of things when we come back. Armstrong and Getty.
The Armstrong and Getty Show. So it looks like Bob Odenkirk's going to be okay. He had a heart attack on the set of Better Call Saul. He's 58 years old, older than I realized, and uh, glad he's going to be okay. For selfish reasons, I don't want uh, the show to go away. Uh, welcome to the show, Joseph Gatti, I believe is how you pronounce it. Welcome. Hello. Hello, am I on? Uh, Joe Getty joins us here yeah. on the Armstrong and Getty I'm Show. Glad. I'm glad Bob Odenkirk's fine because I'm a human being and I have compassion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, we've had a lot of interesting conversations with a lot of different people on the last two days while you've been playing golf. Um, uh, where do you come, where, where's your mind currently on the Simone Biles thing? Because we had Mike Slater on yesterday and, uh, he was pretty hardcore like, uh, like, um, Piers Morgan is like a number of people have been on how she's just a weak loser traitor to her team, uh, for stepping down. And, and I've got to admit, I don't know if I go that far, but the, 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 the USA Today version of the real gold medal goes to her bravery for mental health crap is a little over the top. <clears throat> well, I will I will make the cowardly move of <clears throat> excuse me instead of directly expressing my open point of view, telling you that I'm among seven other guys on this uh, golf trip tournament thing, and it's absolutely unanimous that if it was anybody else in any sport, particularly if it was dudes, the treatment would be wildly oh, different. No kidding. <clears throat> and and the joke is made over and over again. We were watching the swimming. Uh, the what do you call it? The, uh, the the relays last night, and I made the joke, and then it continued through the evening. I'm glad none of the swimmers decided that they really just didn't have their act together and climbed out of the pool mid race. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know I know you you were too busy to see USA Today, but they had front page two columnists, two different articles about her amazing bravery for facing her her you know her mental issues head on and everything like that with nobody saying hey part of the whole thing with sports is being able to keep your head while you know all the pressures are going on that's like a, like 90% of it at the highest level so what the hell are you talking about that's absolutely 100% true and what's really interesting is she, she as far as i know hasn't come out and said it is this problem specifically. I've been taking medication or I've been taking counseling. Uh, it, it's caused by this, blah, blah, blah. But no, it's just I can't really focus that well anymore, and I feel too much pressure, and I can't perform. I'm nervous. So, so what? That's what the business you're in. It doesn't make her brave. That just makes her at the end of her career. And it's, Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. You got, So you got this today, this Sunisa Lee of the United States. She won the women's all-around gymnastics. So you'd have never heard her name if Simone Biles would have been able to compete. This uh, uh, 18-year-old, so she's a woman, she steps in and wins, and, you know, she could have said, oh, I wasn't expecting this, and now everybody's focused on me, and all oh, the pressure, I can't do it. But no, she went ahead and jumped around and won a gold medal. Kicked ass, yeah. Kicked ass. Yeah, good for her. One other thing, <laughs> while we're talking about the Olympics, uh, did you, you probably didn't hear Tim Sandifer's rant about why he's so anti-Olympics. No, I did not. I can't wait to catch it on the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. And I'll tell you what, it was pretty interesting. I mean, it's not going to make me stop watching the Olympics, but he made a pretty decent point. This um, putting everybody on the same stage and acting like it's not true 
that they used to do it in the Soviet Union and East Germany, but they certainly do it in in China now, and they're probably doing it in Iran and a variety of other countries. They snatch these children like at, at age two and force oh, them to right. do things to the point that their bodies break down. And if your body breaks down, the next person in line goes to the Olympics. I mean, they're basically slave laborers. These Chinese athletes, they're, well, they, not basically, they are. They're slave labor, laborers, just instead of picking cotton or making iPhones, they're, uh, they're jumping around or swimming. Yeah, in service to the motherland. Yeah, absolutely true. Which is, you know, why we re- root so hard against the, the dirty commies, honestly. Although there are aspects of the American program that are at least more yeah. voluntary. But they're, you know, if you want to be the best in the world at anything, it's going to be grueling. Yeah, we had this conversation, actually, Mike Slater and I, getting back to that, because he was, as you know, um, he was a Division One college swimmer. And uh, and he swam three or four hours a day pretty much his entire, you know, teens and through college. And, and, and he said to be the very best, you have to put in so much time. And he said he just doesn't want to be the best at anything enough to put in that time. And, and I would agree. Um, whether you're talking about a hero, he's a hero for deciding he doesn't want to do it. (laughs) Wait a minute. What does that make me then? (laughs) I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, how's the, uh, how's the golf tournament going? I'm actually leading after uh, one day. I I slept on the lead, and it's especially notable because the previous night I had eaten something funky, evidently. And I spent yesterday in constant fear that there would be an unfortunate incident. Wow. Burden of Damascus the entire 18 holes? Oh, my God. It was as if I had kicked Montezuma's corpse and made love to his wife. (laughs) It was, uh, oh, God, touch and go all day long. Did not touch a drop to drink. Didn't eat much. It was was a rough one. What did you eat that put you in this state? I think it was a, a crab and lobster cocktail thing that ended up in front of me. We were all kind of swapping the appetizers, but it ended up in front of me. I was munching away on it, and I kept thinking, this doesn't taste like I expected it to. Um, <laughs> not, like, not like, oh, God, it's rancid, just, hmm, the spice on this is odd. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, God, it was a, the, the mudslide of 2021. Tell you what, look out below. Wow, I'd say. God, who's this guest? Dump dump him out. He's a sick enough. Another thing to pitch for the podcast is earlier this hour, I did 20 minutes with James Lindsay. I could talk to him all day long. What an interesting dude. What a fascinating guy. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to that. Uh, Did he break any new ground? Anything particularly notable stand out in your mind? Uh, Well, he's in this battle uh, over um, uh, Colin, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones, who wrote uh, the 1619 Project, A Clown. and Clown Fred, I read that. And because she's got hair like Krusty the Clown, or both of the clown, um, and wears red lipstick... Uh, some she jumped on the idea, and other people have that that it was a racist comment, and he's been having to make the point that he calls everybody a clown. That's kind of his his go to, um, you know, theme for for people who are pushing this political correct critical race theory BS is that they're clowns. So he's gotten into critical critical clown theory, and that that whole that whole rant is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I read that thread; it was funny. But I, you know, and he knows this better than anybody. 
So he's kind of he's, he's trying to counter outrage and victimhood with facts. And wait a minute, I call everybody clown. Well, I wish him well. I think he has the critical mass that he'll be okay, uh, particularly given his odd career path right now, online you know, arguer. Yeah, I'm pretty. Author. I'm pretty concerned that he gets booted off, booted off of Twitter at some point, and then he just he loses his uh, he loses his megaphone. Although he'll find another one probably. I brought up the for real story out of UC Davis. Cultural biases impact native fish. A study calls for the end to rough fish pejorative and the paradigm that created it. This is for real. This is not one of his fake papers that they submitted. This is a real thing. I'm afraid I'm going to need you to go over every word in that sentence. And it <laughs> well, we're using mean words to describe fish, and it's unfair to the fish, apparently. Rough Good fish Lord. is a pejorative and degrading to native fish. I know. I know. How do you, how do you come up with, par- how do you know what's parody and what's real in the modern world? How the hell do you know? Well, I, I find myself wondering, is that part of, and I was talking about this the other day with, like the, the queer theory, it's intentionally so bizarre, you can't understand it, therefore you can't criticize it, therefore you shut up and go along with anything they tell you to do. <laughs> I know. I, I know. I know. And he, as, as uh, James Lindsay pointed out, he said a lot of the stuff that in our fake papers from all those years ago have come true. Some of that stuff is now being put out there as real, and they and they designed it as so over-the-top nobody would believe it. They got published, and now some of that stuff is coming true. So that's that's where we are. Parody has become impossible. We've lived to see it. Good Lord, help us. So you're in first place in your golf tournament. we got to let you go, but uh, update us uh, on how that turns out, I guess. Sorry to leave you when you needed me most. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Goodbye. Get the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty.